0: Good morning, folks. How's everybody? How's everybody? I know we've got some visitors here today. We've got some uh, Barry students that are returning to town, and and some of them are joining us for the first time. Uh, Let me introduce myself. I'm Jim Lanier. I'm one of five elders here. I'm not the primary teaching pastor. That's Mitch Jolly. We're sharing Mitch uh, this week. He is off training church planners in Montreal. He'll be back next Sunday. Uh, it's my privilege to be here with you today. How many of you have heard of string theory? Okay, a goodly number. I googled string theory this week, and one of the topics that popped up was string theory for dummies. That should be perfect, I thought. And opening the link, I discovered that string theory is also known as the theory of everything. Thrilled at that prospect, finding out, I read further, A relatively young science that includes such unusual concepts as super strings, brains, that's B-R-A-N-E-S, and extra dimensions. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Scientists are hopeful that string theory will unlock one of the biggest mysteries of the universe, namely, wait for it, how gravity and quantum physics fit together. My first experience with quantum physics, also known as quantum mechanics, was in high school science class. After we had been studying quantum mechanics for a few confusing weeks, I sheepishly asked my teacher, What exactly is quantum mechanics? And apparently he had been patiently waiting for some moron to ask this question. And with all the seriousness he could muster, he responded, They are the guys that fix busted quantums. (laughs) And that's about all I remember about quantum mechanics. As for gravity, all I need to know is that falling out of a deer stand is going to ruin my day. What, you might ask, does this have to do with me standing before you today? We find ourselves about four weeks into the series, What Do We Believe? And last week, Mitch preached about revelation, God speaks. And this week, we're looking at what he says. The Bible is God's story of the gospel. This title leaves me a bit dissatisfied, so I've thought of other possible subtitles, perhaps the good news, the bad news, and the great news. I believe the Bible is phenomenal literature with all the characteristics of good, great literature, profound character development, conflict between right and wrong, plot and subplot twists and turns, heroic underdogs, wars and battles, broken relationships, great sacrifice, mercy, and judgment, a surprising and unexpected climax that comes not at the end but smack dab in the middle, followed by an extended resolution process leading to ultimate consummation. In this sense, the title of the sermon could be Great Expectations, but I think that title has been taken. So I finally decided that I'll title it The Bible, God's Theory, no, not Theory, theory is not yet proven. The Bible, God's accurate story of everything. You see, every culture, every political party, every religion, every family, every individual has a story, a worldview, a way of making sense of it all. But only God's story is totally accurate, totally true. Mitch said last week that everything we sing, say, or do on Sunday mornings is presented unto the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's begin by humbling ourselves before our great God. Father, Son, Spirit, it is with a profound sense of human frailty that I stand before you and these your children and attempt to tell your story of everything. So I pray and even expect that you will bless us with a transformative understanding of truth in spite of my inadequacies. Holy Spirit, quicken us with correction should I err and be merciful to us this morning because we really want to hear from you. Amen. Well, where's a good place to begin? I've got an idea. Even without turning to that first page in your Bible, Tell me the first three words. In the beginning. Now let me read the words of Jesus from the last page of the text. Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. As Mitch said last week, Jesus is the interpretive key of the Bible. And for the rest of our time together... I will attempt to link or string together just a few of the critical elements of God's story of everything from beginning to end so that by the end we can all say yea and amen. Back to the beginning. The first three chapters of the Bible. I'll read parts here and there. We know it so well. And what I want us to concentrate on is what the narrative tells us right from the start about God, about what it tells us about humanity, and what it tells us about the relationship between God and humanity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be. What follows for the next 23 verses is the story of how everything that is was formed to fill the nothing that was simply by the word of his power. And the first thing created, the very first thing, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God continues to speak, let, and it was, and at each step God saw and declared it was good. Finally, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, male and female, and let them have dominion over the fish, birds, livestock, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything that moves on the earth. And God said, I have given you everything you need, not only to survive, but to thrive. And God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Chapter two gives us a bit more information, telling us that God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Let's pause for a second. How many of us here have either had parents, or are parents, or both? Should be unanimous, I think. (laughs) I have a theory there is one parental instruction that is uniformly the first instruction we learn No, thou shalt not. Why? Parents uniformly want to protect their children and preserve the cuddly relationship they have with them. Thou shalt not stick food up your nose. Thou shalt not swallow the pennies or especially the button batteries. Thou shalt not cut the lamp cord with the scissors. And guess what? They do it anyway, don't they, Diane? Diane. We would not be surprised at what comes next. Adam, I have given you life and everything needed to bless you. however, don't eat the fruit of that tree, because if you do, you will die. The first and only so far thou shalt not. Now the narrative gets a little more gives a little more information about the female and why the female. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, the first not good. And if you've taken the truth project you know that at this point a question arises is this statement it is not good a qualitative statement or an ethical statement a right or wrong statement you see so far the essence of god has an usness about it and the man alone does not convey that usness image of godliness And so God made a helper fit for him, Eve, and brought him to the man. And Adam said something like, Hallelujah, Jesus. And the man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed. Let us in our minds gaze upon the nakedness of Adam and Eve. I know what some of you might be thinking, and I can only say shame on you. What I'm wondering is, did they have belly buttons or not? Perhaps one of the biggest mysteries of the universe, not. For our purposes today, I choose to follow the teaching of Joe Biden, who recently proclaimed, we choose the truth over the facts. I have no idea what he was referring to. But for us today, let's not get lost in the weeds of belly buttons and what a minute or an hour or a day factually was. I don't think it's the point of the story. But that's just my thinking about it. What do I know? closest I ever got to seminary was picking up dates on the Emory campus (laughs) before I found my true love. So, what are the points? What so far can we include about, conclude about God, humanity, and the relationship between the two? God desires and creates order out of chaos. He is sovereignly powerful over it all. Although the text does not refer to the garden in this way, I don't think it would be a stretch "...to consider the garden a kingdom, a kingdom with an all-powerful regent and subjects who not only thrive under his dominion, but also participate in it. The order he creates is purposeful and intentionally relational. All the elements of creation relate to one another and to God in a perfectly good way. Of all that is created, only mankind bears the image of godliness." God willingly desires man to participate with him in ruling over everything. God is a giver, the giver of life and the provider of all to sustain it. God is jealously protected, protective of his relationship with mankind and establishes boundaries to protect it. God wants man to share in his dominion, share his authority, and share his power over created order. Mankind, though weak, is totally protected and provided for in the garden, unthreatened in any way. There is no anxiety and no sickness. Man is given work, but the work is productive and purposeful. The relationship between God and his image bearers is totally harmonious and intimate, as is the relationship between the man and the woman. And there is divinely ordained purpose in this relationship to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. All is perfect, so perfect, I believe, that every occasion the word good is used, the word holy could be substituted for it. What could go wrong? Chapter 3, Now the Serpent. The truth and trustworthiness of God are questioned. And Adam and Eve believe the lie. Surely you will not die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. At this very point, Adam and Eve begin to reject God's story about himself and them. And they begin to write their own story. They reject reject the truth for a lie. We'll decide for ourselves what's good. They disobey the one command God had given them for their protection, and all hell breaks loose in creation. Their eyes were opened, and in shame they perceived their nakedness and their vulnerability. When God came in the cool of the evening to walk with his children, they hid and they blamed. Refusing responsibility, Adam declares, that woman... That you gave me. All relationships are broken. All creation is cursed. And for the first time, pain, hardship, toil, sickness, and death pervades and corrupts all that was created, good and holy. The couple is forced to leave the life-giving garden and cherubim and a flaming sword guard the pathway back to the presence of God and the tree of life. The grand conflict, the superb dilemma, is introduced into the story. And as excited readers, we yearn to find out if it will remain so or if there is any hope that things will miraculously all work out in the end. Dare we hope against seemingly insurmountable odds that all the grandeur of divine creation, of divine created order, may somehow be restored? We have a couple of clues to place our hope on. God still cares for his children and covers their nakedness. Though rebelled against, he remains gracious to them. And in cursing the serpent, God proclaims, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Should we expect some hero to emerge as the story plays out? Like those guys that fixed the busted quantums, God observes the chaos. And sets about not only to repair it. But to restore it back to the way it was to begin with. After the great, before the great shattering fall. That is the story of the entire rest of the book. To connect all the dots along the way would be impossible for us this morning. It would take more time than to preach through Genesis, and you know how long that's taking. So let's just cover some high ground as the story unfolds. Adam and Eve are fruitful, and they begin to multiply outside the garden, but their offspring continue to bear the rebellious nature of their parents. From ch- chapter 6, the lost Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Grieved in his heart, he decides to blot out all life, man and animal, from the, ple- from the face of the earth. But Noah, a righteous, blameless man who walked with the Lord, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God would use this righteous remnant to continue his plan. The saga continues with the offspring of Noah until we see the, gathering, the people gathering to build a tower, reaching to the heavens to make a name for ourselves, to make a story up about ourselves so that they would not be dispersed a direct act of rebellion from the instruction given to Adam and Eve god confounds their language and their plan and scatters them across the face of the earth it seems his plan will not be thwarted out of one of these scattered peoples god calls a pagan idolater abram and gives him a purpose i know you and your wife are barren and old like really old but i'm going to take you make of you a great nation and I'm going to bless you that so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a great expectation. God establishes with him the everlasting covenant of the promised land. And we follow the line of Abraham through Isaac to Jacob who has 12 sons. Jacob leads a tumultuous life as we have learned and is given the name Israel, the one who strives with God. By that name this chosen people of God are still called. The family grows to 70 before famine strikes threatening annihilation, the end of the story. But God has seen it coming and placed one of Jacob's son in position one of his sons in position in Egypt to provide salvation. Talk about another plot twist. And finally, in, in, dying, in his dying moments, Jacob speaks to his sons what will happen to them in the days to come. Talking to Judah, he says, As for you, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor from the ruler's staff from between his, his feet. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Why did God choose or elect this people, and for what purpose? Although eventually righteousness will be credited to Abraham for his faith, there are no initial qualifications given. God just called Abram and said, Go, and Abram went. Abram, Abram was elected purely out of God's sovereignty, and his offspring, Israel, was elected through whom God would achieve his purpose of displaying his glory in order to draw all mankind back to into his family, thereby reestablishing his kingdom. Begin to think of election not only in individual terms, but also corporate terms. The growing nation remains in Egypt as foretold for 400 years, thinking God has abandoned them in Egyptian slavery. They cry out to God and God hears. Actually, God already had known and had sovereignly protected a Jewish baby boy from murder and had raised him in Pharaoh's household. Yet another plot plot twist. Moses would become the Israelites' nation's redeemer. In order for the Israelites to avoid the one great final plague, Moses gives instructions for each family to take a lamb and slaughter it and cover their doorposts with its blood. When the angel of death passed by, he would see the blood and pass over the people inside. The lamb must die that the Israelites would live. The people of God are released but will very quickly display distrust, distrust and disobedience in refusing to enter the land that God had promised their father Abraham. They knew God's story but believed their own. We are but grasshoppers before giants. The entire generation, but for two, Joshua and Caleb, would perish in the wilderness. Of all the people, only Moses could approach God, but not even Moses would enter the promised land because of one disobedient act. The separation imposed in the garden continued. But God in his mercy provided a way for the people to experience his glory from a distance. God gave instructions for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, one door, outer courtyard, altar for burnt offerings, basin for ceremonial cleansing, the holy place containing the altar of incense, table of showbread, and golden lampstand. And finally, the most holy place containing the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the place where God's presence would descend. The most holy place would be separated from all the rest by a finely constructed veil upon which had been embroidered cherubim. Those same guardians preventing the passage to the garden and the tree of life. After 16, just as God commanded statements, the tabernacle was completed. And the glory of God descended over the most holy place. Are you getting the feeling that obedience is important to God? God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments, all dealing either with their relationship with God or their relationship with each other, as if saying, hey folks, this is how we're going to get along. Elaborate and extensive instructions and religious practices are given to a priestly caste that would serve as intermediaries between God and the people. Only the high priest would enter the presence of God in the most holy place and only once a year on the day of atonement. On this bloody day of sacrifice, Aaron, the high priest, finally would lay his hands and figuratively the sins of the people on the scapegoat and drive it into the wilderness. The Israelite nation would be cleansed for a while, This religious practice must be repeated annually because all the blood from all the bulls and all the goats was insufficient to atone for the sins of the people once and for all. The promised land would be taken and inhabited and a 400-year cycle emerged of apostasy, judgment, deliverance, and peace The cycle would be repeated over and over, for no one hero is sufficient to usher in everlasting change. A prophet and priest, Samuel arises to lead the people, but the people demand a king like the nations around them. Israel once again rejects the story of God that he has given them in exchange for the story of the culture around them. God tells Samuel to give them what they want. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Sounds a bit like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Tall and handsome Saul, a descendant of Benjamin, not Judah, is chosen to please Israel. You know the disastrous story. And David from the tribe of Judah will become king. And the Lord promises him, your house and your kingdom shall, we, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But maybe God was mistaken. Only for one generation would it, will it last. The kingdom divides north and south and the worldly kings that reign are for but a few godless scoundrels leading the people of the true God into all manner of idolatry. We've heard your story, but we choose for ourselves other stories. Once again, the stories of the culture around us. God raises up prophets to call the people back to God and warn of impending calamity and judgment should they not turn from their wickedness. These prophets also foretell events that a righteous remnant had been hoping for. You know, didn't Dub tell us last week that hope, covered over in faith, yields expectation? From Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Should we hope... Dare we have the greatest of expectations that this might be the heroic offspring of Eve? Surely this son would be different from the son mentioned in Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Could this son usher in Jeremiah's prophecy? A new covenant I will make with you, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the one they broke. I will put my law within them, written on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. Isaiah's prophecy continues, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. A light for the nations. Was not that not the task given to Abraham? That all the nations would be blessed? Could this be the coming of a new Israel? A second Israel? That would complete the task? Isaiah continues with what appears to be contradictions. Would this be a suffering servant? Many would be astonished by his marred appearance. No form or majesty that we might look at him. Despised, rejected, a man of sorrows. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. With His wounds we are healed, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Sounds like that scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. The Lord has lain on Him the iniquity of us all. Is this the heroic story we would write? A lamb led to slaughter, although He had done no violence? Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then, for almost 500 years, the story goes silent. We know from history, Palestine, along with the rest of the world, is conquered and becomes part of the Greek empire with its cultural story of philosophy and reason, followed by the Roman Empire with its emperors claiming to be deity, but nothing, not a word from God. And then one day, the angel Gabriel appeared to a young Jewish girl of absolutely no importance and said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Could this little baby, offspring of a woman, but not only a woman, satisfy the great dilemma? From John we hear, In the beginning... Wait, wasn't that where we started today? I am the Alpha, the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wait, didn't God create by speaking? All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In Genesis God saw that the light was good and God separated the darkness from the light. Remember the usness of God, God, the spirit of God, and now and really all along the son of God, the alpha, the first. He would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. A young man, he appeared before the Baptist who proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wait, what kind of a bizarre story is this? The Lamb's purpose is to die, to bleed out as a sacrifice. This isn't the story they wanted. The story they wanted was a conquering hero who would cast out the evil Roman oppressors. After John's baptism, he would be led into the led by the Spirit into the corrupted garden, the wilderness, to be tempted by that ancient serpent, Satan. Yet unlike Adam and Eve, he would not sin. After the temptation, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus himself, proclaiming the gospel of God, God's good news story. Do you know what he proclaimed? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For three years he walked among us and he taught as one with authority. He preached with the power of truth and he healed sickness and cast out the powers of darkness. And then one day, alone with his disciples, he asked them a question. Who do men think I am? What's their story about me? What's your story about me? Let me tell you my story about me. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter rebuked him. That story's not going to fly, Jesus. Nobody wants a dead hero, Jesus. We want dead Romans. And turning to his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. You have exchanged God's true story for the lies of culture. According to Mark, three times in three consecutive chapters, Jesus would speak his destiny. Rejection, arrest, execution, resurrection. And in Mark's gospel, on each side of these three chapters, these three passages, Jesus healed the blind. The blind man at Bethesda and blind Bartimaeus. Open your eyes, disciples. Open your eyes, readers. See the real Jesus. The final priest and unblemished Lamb of God. And from that point on, Jesus races toward Jerusalem to complete his task, dying on a Roman cross. And in three days, he would rise from the dead and take hold of the keys to death in Hades. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Those fearsome guardians, the cherubim embroidered on that curtain, are cast aside. And all who would believe on this faithful, obedient son, this second Israel, are welcomed into God's gracious presence. The climax of the story. The solution to the great dilemma. The climax, but not the consummation. Not the resolution. Look around you still looks a bit like hell on earth to me. Are our hopes dashed? Do our great expectations look like Miss Havisham's decades-old wedding cake? Even the disciples are disappointed. Lord, will you at this time finally restore the kingdom to Israel? His answer... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right from the beginning, God has called mankind, such as we are, to participate in his dominion. Let them have dominion over all the earth and every creeping thing on the earth. Like snakes. And when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the church is elected and established, and it re- remains the church's mission to finally resolve the dilemma, to become the third Israel in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then one day, when the mission is complete, behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And reaching all the way back into the garden, he will snatch the hoe from Adam's weak hand and strike a final blow to that creeping serpent's head. The new Jerusalem, the new Eden will come down And right through the middle flows the river of the water of life, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And on each side of the river, the tree of life. Come, partake. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords proclaims, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Wow, what a story. I should probably just sit down, but I've got a question for you, a question for all of us. Let's go back to the middle, the climax. And gaze upon our hero, anguished in soul, in the garden of Gethsemane. Crying out to the Father, he pleads, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. You might think he's wanting to avoid the horror of the cross. Father, is there any other way? And across the centuries, he asks us today, do you know any other way? Any other story that so perfectly solves all the great mysteries? Are you willing to immerse yourself in this, his story The story of everything? Are you willing to take on the mission given to the church to be the last Israel? The timing of the consummation may depend on your answer. Well, how should we respond? I think we should worship. So let us join that scene from Revelation 7 with that great, innumerable multitude from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And let us cry out Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom. And thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Yea and Amen.